In our society today on television, on the internet, we are presently observing the effort to bring down a Supreme Court nominee with a 35-year-old charge of sexual misconduct. It's always about sex, isn't it? It's always about, it seems, so many people being charged, both men and women, more men of course, but women too, being charged with sexual misdeeds. And you know, everybody is against, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat or you're something else, you know, everybody is against sexual abuse. Nobody supports sexual abuse. The problem is we don't know how to stop it. And it's unfortunate because people don't realize today that sexual abuse is an outgrowth of the lowering of our moral standards in the last 50 years. So everybody is shouting about sexual abuse and we can't have it and it's a terrible thing and it ought to be prosecuted and blah, 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 blah. But nobody is willing to do what is necessary to mitigate that evil in our society. I mean, do you remember the scandal that involved President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky? Younger people may only have seen that in books, but some of us are old enough to remember when that was happening. President Clinton had a sexual relationship with a young intern in his office while he was serving as president. And there was a lot of debate at the time. It was interesting to note that when interviewed about the affair at that time, most people felt that it was a private matter and no one had the right to judge or comment. <laughs> How far have we come? What people were really saying was that they didn't feel that they had a right to make a moral judgment on the conduct of another. Aside from, of course, politicians and people that are in the public eye, we can go ahead and judge them all we want, but we can't judge each other. This is because we have come to a point in our history where morality has become a relative thing and can no longer be judged objectively. In other words, I have my morality and you have your morality. And what we aim to do is not find what is right, but rather find out how to respect each other's morality and privacy. The worst sin is not adultery today. It is intolerance of another set of moral values. Of course, as Christians, we have long held that there is an objective set of values and morals established by God that are, that are according to the Bible. It was upon these values and moral standards that the United States was first established and later used as the foundation for all of our laws and social systems. Because our nation has lived by these values for several centuries, it has become rich and powerful. And I dare say that undermining these core values will eventually lead to the loss of greatness and the weakening of our position in the world. Now America is not the first nation to lose its way because of the sexual sins of its leaders and lack of high morals in its laws 
Ancient Greece and Rome suffered the loss of their empires largely due to the decrease of social morality. They caved in from the inside. Yes, they were taken over by the Huns. Yes, other armies took them over, but they were, uh, they were falling apart from the inside long before they were attacked from the outside. Even God's chosen people, the Jews, were destroyed as a nation largely due to their foray into pagan religions which often included forbidden sexual practices. So our task as Christians is to do what we have always done and that is to speak the truth in love in reminding our world that God's laws and God's value system never change. And so this morning, therefore, I'd like to talk about sexual immorality and what God's word says about today's attitude and practice in this area of human behavior. First of all, I want to say the following. Sexual immorality in our society is now acceptable. I'm not saying it's acceptable. I'm just saying As I observe our society, sexual immorality is now acceptable in our society. Recently I read an article stating that adultery was the millennial generation's acceptable sin. I believe the author was using the word adultery in the broad sense, referring to all forms of sexual immorality and not the more narrow biblical idea of just sex outside of marriage. In this sense it's easy to see that our culture really does overlook and excuse sexual sin. Sex, for example, is exploited through pornography and other forms of media. Listen, there was a time, if you wanted to see the picture of of someone who was naked, you had to go to a, a store and get a magazine with a brown wrapper around it and you know you were embarrassed to pay for it and you had to sneak it around, you know, no more. You just pull out your phone and get all the the graphic pornography that you want. We're truly becoming what Peter described as a people having eyes full of adultery. 1 Peter 2.14. We've become desensitized to nudity, public intercourse, and sexual activity on TV, in books, in commercials, everywhere. The old adage that sex sells is very true. It gets your attention and it can sell products. Extramarital affairs are no longer seen as a terrible sin, but rather a transitional experience. You, know, you have your practice marriage. <laughs> your first marriage is your practice marriage. You know, it's not important. You know. And yet the Bible says that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Premarital sex is no longer considered as fornication. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 5. No longer condemned as wrong. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Today the effort is to promote safe premarital sex because it's assumed that people will just simply have sex before they're married. It's assumed. Nobody's saying you ought not to do it. Now they're saying you you need to be safe. You need to practice safe sex. Not abstinence from premarital sex. 
Christians have known for a long time that the safest sex is that which is practiced by life partners in a committed relationship of marriage. And what about marriage? Today we see nothing wrong with couples living together without the commitment of marriage vows. Nothing wrong with that. It's normal, natural. When questioned, they say that, well, our relationship is as good as and the same as marriage. However, they quickly concede that if they get tired of their partner, it's a lot easier to leave because they don't have to deal with a divorce. Why? Because they're not united legally. These people want it both ways. They want the benefits that come with a secure life commitment, but they refuse to take the step to actually make a commitment in a legal marriage vow. You can't have it both ways. You can't enjoy what is reserved for committed partners in a marriage without being married. I mean, there's so many other examples of the lowering of sexual morals in our society. We don't have time to cover it. I don't want to be, you know, this is not a harangue about this. Domestic sexual abuse and abuse of children sexually. Homosexual, homosexuality rather, as an acceptable, even a desirable lifestyle. I remember when you know, my book, Gay Rights or Wrongs, came out many years ago and I was being interviewed on the radio and it was a call-in show and, you know, and the guy interviewed me for a while and then they had people call in and ask me questions about it. And one guy called and he said, you know, the usual, you're crazy, you know, blah, 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 because his argument was, uh, homosexuality was just the most wonderful lifestyle. He said that to me you know, on, the, on the radio over the phone. And I answered him, if it's such a wonderful lifestyle, why is it that your group has the highest suicide rate if it's such a wonderful lifestyle? In every area of sexual immorality, the effort is to lower the biblical standard or do away with it altogether. We're entering an age where there is sexual anarchy and unfortunately our society is going to pay a heavy price for it. The thing we have to be careful is that that anarchy does not creep in and bleed into the church as well. Another point I want to make, sexual immorality is also the most unhealthy sin in today's culture. Solomon many years ago understood this when he wrote, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Proverbs 6.32. Witness the destruction of Mr. Clinton's presidency his honor as a man, the ties of his family and his place in history, all for a few moments of sexual pleasure. I mean, even, even though it happened decades ago, rare is a story about President Clinton today that does not mention that thing about him. Adultery is unhealthy to the body. Those with AIDS and various forms of STDs can tell you of the suffering their improper sexual relations have caused them. Look at our inner cities and we will see that at the root of many problems are the unwanted babies being cared for by unmarried women who are not able to put off their sexual activity until marriage. Observe the many broken homes in every community and note that families are destroyed because one partner searches for sexual adventure outside their home and outside their marriage. 
So much of the guilt and low self-esteem, anxiety and depression suffered by so many people in our society today can be traced back to improper sexual activity regretted by those who suffer emotionally long after the sexual encounters are gone. We are still suffering from the problems uh, caused by the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s and we're paying the price for the breaking down of the walls that protected us from the ravages of sexual sin. What does Paul tell us about sex? When, when, you, when you sin sexually you sin against your own body. You know, stealing is bad, yes. Lying is bad, yes. And you know, bearing those are all bad things but when you sin sexually you're sinning against your own body and the cut is deep and I know from personal experience as a minister of people that I've counseled uh, over the years and they come to me not with something they did you know, and they feel bad about like yesterday or two weeks ago we're talking about 12 years ago they did something and it just keeps just it's like acid dripping, you know, it just keeps bothering them. Another point on this issue. Sexual immorality is the most unforgiven sin in today's culture. The problem that occurs when you have, a, when you have relative morality is that you cannot objectively determine what is truly and universally right or wrong. The net result is that you cancel out the notion that real sin exists. Well, it follows that if there is no real sin, only relative sin, then there's no need for a real savior. And there's no real forgiveness. And there's no personal redemption. In our society, Jesus becomes a kind of benign spiritual leader and cheerleader to help us be our best selves and to live happily in this world. Not our crucified savior. And in this kind of environment, people refuse to acknowledge adultery or sexual sin as any kind of wrong. What? I'm not doing nothing wrong. You can't tell me what to do. You can't interfere with my personal life. Who are you to tell me what to do? That's the attitude. And so sexual sin becomes a weakness, a mistake. Bad, you know, somebody who rapes somebody and then comes in court and says to your honor, you know, I want to apologize. I made a bad judgment. You what? A bad judgment is you went down Fourth Street instead of going down Fifth Street. That's a bad judgment. You invested in Bitcoin. I don't know. Maybe. That's a bad judgment. But giving yourself away sexually, that's not just a bad judgment. It becomes a lifestyle choice. It becomes none of your business. But it's never a damnable sin. It's never a destructive act. The problem here is that sin is sin, whether a person acknowledges it or not. And sin has its effects, whether a person realizes it or not. For example, let's say that a two-year-old boy wants to play Superman. 
He's got the Superman t-shirt with the big S on the front and he's got a red cape that he got for his birthday. And, you know, and he's you know, running around the house. I'm Superman. And he sees Superman you know, on TV flying all over the place and he gets the idea, well, if Superman can fly, I can fly. I got the Superman t-shirt. I got the magic cape. And so he goes out on the balcony, you know, the porch. He lives on the second floor or the third floor of a, of a condo. And he climbs up on the, on, the, uh, on the ledge and he says, Superman can fly. I've got the cape. I can fly. And he jumps off the balcony. What do you think is going to happen? Well, the law of gravity is going to take over. That's what's going to happen. See, the little boy does not understand the principle of gravity. All he knows is that he's wearing the cape and like Superman, he should be able to fly. And we know what will happen. Even though he is ignorant of the law of gravity, this ignorance will not protect him. If he jumps, he will fall because the law of gravity works whether people acknowledge it or not. Well, in the same way, with sexual sin or any other kind of sin, there is a universal and absolute law regarding sin. And that is the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23a. In other words, if you sin, if you disobey God's commands, not only will you suffer physical death, as we all do eventually, but you will also be subject to spiritual death because you will be judged and condemned as a guilty sinner. Everyone is subject to God's spiritual laws in the same way that we are all subject to physical laws whether we know or agree with them or not. It doesn't matter if you don't accept God's laws. They're in effect for you. (laughs) They don't just work because you agree with them. They work whether you agree with them or not. And so in today's culture, people are suffering from the ravages of sexual sins, disease, depression, shame, broken lives and families. But because they refuse to see these things as sinful, they also refuse to look for and find the solution for their ailment, which is forgiveness from God. You know that same verse, Romans 6.23, it contains the answer to all of those who are suffering from the results of sin. The first half says the wage of sin is death. Yes. But the second half, what does it say? But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so God extends forgiveness and eternal life to all who come to Christ in faith. But that faith requires us to acknowledge that our problem is sin. There is no forgiveness without repentance and there can be no repentance unless we recognize and acknowledge that we've broken God's laws. You can't have the liberating experience of total forgiveness without the conscious confession of real sin. One is impossible without the other. So let's let's move along, shall we, to dealing with the temptations of sexual sin. I don't want this to be just about the problem. I want it to also be about the solution to the problem or the approach to the problem. How do we deal with the temptation of sexual sin, because everybody is tempted in one way or another. So how do we deal with the temptation to sexual sin? Well, number one, recognize that you're being tempted. 
In Genesis it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? And if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. When sexual sin tempts you, realize, understand, that it's not just a phase you're going through, or how you feel, or who you are, or what you need, or no big deal. It's sin and it'll have physical, psychological and especially spiritual consequences. First Corinthians 6.18. Sexual sin is always wrapped up in a very attractive package. So you will feel that it is somehow acceptable, even desirable. But make no mistake, a sin is a sin is a sin no matter how it's presented. Essentially the temptation, you know, sexual temptation, the temptation is to step beyond the boundaries that God has established in the matter of human sexuality. What are the boundaries? God invented sex. You don't do nothing in sex that God doesn't know about. <laughs> he knows what you do. He invented it. <laughs> but he has set a boundary. And we sin when we go beyond the boundaries that God has set. And what is the boundary? Well, sexual intimacy within marriage only. Now there are a variety of sexual sins, but in the end they're all the same. We disobey God's commands regarding human sexuality. So when sexual situations occur, know what is really happening. You're being tempted to disobey God. You've had a fight with your wife, and you've been going through a bit of a rough patch. The girl at the office, you know, it's always the girl at the office, but let's just say the girl at the office is nice. She has a coffee. Oh, she so understands you. Somebody understands you. And she's so easy to talk to. She doesn't have to do your washing. You know what I'm saying? And you know, why just have coffee at break? Let's have lunch together. You know? And if God were to come to you and say, oh, you better be careful, sin's crouching at the door, you'd be saying, well, it's only lunch. No, it isn't. <laughs> no, it's not. And you know it's not. Understand when you're being tempted. Number two, how to deal with sexual sin. Number two, remember who you are. Paul writes, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. 1 Corinthians 3.17. Everyone is tempted to disobey God in the matter of sex. Christians, however, deal with this matter differently because they're motivated by the desire to be holy and not just the desire to be gratified sexually. Sex is part of our lives but must take its proper place within our lives so that we can maintain our holiness. God has created us as sexual beings, yes, and this element in our nature serves our emotional and physical and spiritual wellness, yes. We need to remember, however, that our primary goal as Christians is to be holy, not sexually fulfilled. When these two needs collide, the need to be holy should take precedence. For example, you're single, you have sexual needs. What are your options? Well, you can have sex with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever. 
You can consume pornography or you can abstain. The last option is the best because it will give you what the first two will not and that is peace of mind and obedience to God and spiritual power and a clear conscience and freedom in prayer. Someone will say, but what about sexual satisfaction? Well, the problem here is that sexual satisfaction obtained through the activity that disobeys God's command is only temporary. And especially for the Christian, not worth, not worth the loss of joy and peace that comes with it. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it. Everyone who experiences sexual feelings must choose holiness as his best or her best option because the reward of holiness is greater than the reward of sexual satisfaction. Being holy before God is much more satisfying over a much longer period with much greater rewards than the fleeting pleasure of sex especially obtained in a sinful way. Hebrews 11.25. Okay, so how to deal with temptation. One, recognize when you're being tempted. Number two, remember who you are and what you are about. And then number three, look for a way out. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. There's the be careful, you know, know that you may be tempted. Okay? Then he says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So God understands that we're subject to sexual temptation. This is nothing new. Note that Paul says that when we are tempted, we should look for the way that God provides that will enable us to endure. When we're tempted in anything, including sexual temptation, God is there to guide us through, showing us the way out without falling. He does not remove the temptation. He guides us through the danger. Most times, however, we're not listening or we're just doing what we want to do. But if we call out to God, He will show us a way out that may include prayer or the remembrance of His word, a passage. Uh, the encouragement of a friend, the inner strength to say no, the ability to stand still and let the wave of temptation just wash over us without taking us along. I've discovered in my life that when something begins to wash over me, not just a sexual temptation, but the temptation to be angry or the temptation to be depressed, or the temptation to feel sorry for myself. You know, it's, like a, it's like a wave that's just washing over me. I've learned that if I can just hang on for 24 hours, that thing just go away. That the next day I'm not going to feel as angry as I felt the day before. That the next day I won't feel as offended as I thought I was the day before. That the next day that sexual temptation be gone, not have the effect on me anymore. That the next day I won't want revenge. That, you know, Whatever and whenever it comes, temptation to sin cannot overpower us if we look for the way out that God provides. And so sexual immorality is a temptation for both those who are married and those who are single. For singles who need intimacy and they're seeking partners, the temptation to easy or casual sex is great in our sexually immoral society. 
But I say again, casual sex is not a good way to find a serious and sincere Christian marriage partner. The guy that you meet who's drunk at a bar, this is not the guy that's going to make a, a good marriage material. You know what I'm saying? For marrieds who may be bored or in conflict with their spouse, sexual adventure outside of marriage or divorce may seem attractive. We should realize, however, that disobeying God in sexual matters is sin, and God warns us that all sins will be punished. With sexual sins, the negative results often start here, and then they finish with the loss of our souls. Obeying God, on the other hand, brings the great reward of salvation and eternal life. Paul, again, I go to him, summarizes the issue in 1 Corinthians, and I think he had a lot to say in 1 Corinthians. Why? Because there was a lot of sex trouble in, <laughs> at Corinth. They were people who were used to immoral sexual conduct, so he had a lot to say to them. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It doesn't mean he couldn't shake hands with a woman, meaning to become sexually involved with a woman while you're not married. So that's what he's talking about. So concerning the things about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. When he says depriving, he's not talking about depriving each other of food. He says, stop depriving each other of sexual intimacy. And then he says, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, one in another in that. Here he's saying, you know, he's single. He's not married. He doesn't need to be married. He has the gift of being able to be unmarried without struggling with sexual temptation every day. And then he's saying, but not everybody has that gift. If that's not your gift, then you need to get married. What does he say? By I say to the unmarried and to the widows that is good for them if they remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You know, I'm burning with passion. I'm unmarried. What, what, what's the way out that God has given to me? Well, Paul says it right here. It's better for you to marry than to burn. That's the way out. So here Paul lays out the basics for sexual satisfaction within a Christian context. Very quickly, number one, most people cannot remain single because of their sexual needs. Okay? Verse seven and eight. Number two, he says marriage is a refuge from this and other temptations. Verse two. Number three, he says both men and women have sexual needs which are different. And it is the responsibility of each spouse to know and satisfy the needs of the other. Verses three to six. And then he says, unmarried people, widows, divorcees, singles, should be married to fulfill, among other things, their sexual needs. If they cannot, do so in an unmarried state. So in closing, let me just say that I encourage both married and single people to strive for holiness, 
when they are tempted sexually. And allow God to guide you during these times. I also hope that single people will not be discouraged, but rather continue praying that God will guide you to a happy and a holy marriage one day. It's not good for man or woman to be alone. One of the very first things that God says about, uh, about a, a human being, is not good that they be alone. And so the prayer always should be, Lord, bring someone into my life. If you're a single person, unmarried, Lord, bring someone into my life with whom I can have a holy and satisfying married relationship and, 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 and honor you. And so if you're not a Christian, of course, then I encourage you to repent of your sins and confess your faith in Christ, be baptized this very day so that God can wash away all of your sins, even your worst sexual sins, and give you a clear conscience and a holy life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian and you need forgiveness, or perhaps you need help to deal with the struggles of life, or strength to resist the temptations, well, the, the elders are here, the ministers are here to support you, to pray with you, to give you counsel, if those are the needs that you have. Whatever it is that you need to respond to this morning, we encourage you to do so as we stand and as we sing our song of encouragement.